0: In contemporary South Asia, the question of Muslim origins emerges in school textbooks, political dialogues, or at tourist or pilgrimage sites. The repeated narrative revolves around the foreign Muslim leader Muhammad bin Qasim and his conquest of sin in the year 712. Manan Ahmed Asif provides a critical interrogation of this narrative in A Book of Conquest, The Chachnameh and Muslim Origins in South Asia, published by Harvard University Press in 2017 crux of this origin narrative stems from the Chachnameh, a 13th century Persian text which purports to be a translation of an eyewitness account written in Arabic. Asif approaches the Chachnameh by initially situating it within the spatial and political context of medieval Sindh. He then places it within the textual universe of the early 13th century, thinking about audience, genre, and themes. Through this process of unreading, He concludes that the Chachnameh is neither translation nor primarily concerned with conquest, but rather provides a coherent political theory for its contemporaneous readers. Thinking about the text in this new light, Asif examines the Chachnameh through the lens of advice writing, questions of governing difference, and the calibration of gender and power. Finally, he explores the afterlife of the Chachnameh and determines the factors that frame the story of the conquest of Sindh as the primary narrative of Muslim origins in South Asia. In our conversation, we discuss what origin narratives tell us about the contemporary world, the deployment of notions of conquest and foreignness in South Asian discourse, the maritime orientation of early Sindh, literary and social context of the Chachnameh's production, genres of advice writing, the political organization of religious difference, the roles women played in articulating just forms of rule the colonial reframing of Muslim origins, and the social consequences of dominant readings of the Chachnameh. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Without any further delay, here's my conversation with Manan Ahmed Asif about his book, A Book of Conquest, The Chachnameh and Muslim Origins in South Asia. Welcome Manan, thanks for joining us on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you?
1: Good. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me.
0: So this book, A Book of Conquest, uh, this this is a really interesting book. You you combine both kind of the personal writing that you've been doing for a long time with this uh, kind of deep analysis uh, and both the kind of pre, uh, pre-life pre and post-life of this uh, text, the Ch- uh, Chachnameh. Um, But before we get into uh, your book, um, we always begin with a little bit of information about our authors. So, Could you tell us a little bit about uh, what brought you to the study of Muslim societies? Uh, Were there any particular moments or mentors uh, that kind of structured the types of things you were interested in or the the ways you approached them?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question to think about. I guess, I, uh, let me just be a little bit more specific, so how I came to write this particular book uh, was um, as a result of the schooling I had in um, Zalhaks, Pakistan in the 1980s um, and early 90s, where um, a figure of, the, of this Arab general named Muhammad bin Qasim was a uh, part of our curriculum, our school curriculum from sort of second to third. Onwards, and uh, he was touted as the first citizen of Pakistan, someone who established an Islamic state in the eighth century when he uh, conquered Sindh. And I, when I came to the United States for my um, sort of bachelor's education, I was not in the historical studies uh, or social sciences, and it took a long circuitous road for me to finally. Um, Decide that I wanted to pursue uh, a degree in history. And at that point, uh, my earliest teachers, uh, one at uh, um, Miami, Ohio, uh, Professor Matthew Gordon, who's sort of a specialist of the Bassett era, and uh, then Fred Donner at Chicago, sort of pushed me into thinking about, you know, these foundational texts that we have, Um, pertaining to conquest and governance. And it was at that moment that I started to think seriously about looking at um, uh, the Chashnameh and other, um, at that point I was also interested in the conquest of Spain and the conquest of Iraq and it was sort of a larger project. Um, And then um, it sort of shifted some, I wanna say once uh, Muzaffar Alam, who's a mobile historian uh, joined uh, University of Chicago where I was doing my PhD, and I, it became more interested in cultural and social history. Um, and so those mentors, those that training, um, really sort of shaped the contours of how I ask a question and what this book ended up being. Um, and though I should add, uh, I think hastily that one of the uh, one of the other formative uh, mentors and teachers was Ronald Inden, who. Um, as a sort of um, historian of social science and social knowledge in India, uh, ancient and medieval, um, really shaped the ways in which I thought about the larger processes.
0: Now, you focus uh, or you frame the book kind of around this idea of origins. Um, You talk a little bit about how origin narratives can help us think about the contemporary or modern world and you focus on a particular origin narrative of the beginnings of Muslims in India or South Asia and in the many retellings of this origins narrative, um, you you point out that we find many patterns, um, especially notions of this, this idea of conquest but also notions of foreignness. Uh, can you talk about… Um, or, or kind of set us up in the sense of why is it important to, to think about this origins narrative, uh, today? Uh, how do notions of conquest and foreignness, how are they deployed across the, the different narrations, uh, that you've come across both from your, your childhood, uh, and your understandings of, uh, contemporary South Asia?
1: Um, I think we can, um, uh, we can, sort of ex- imagine this in along two lines one sort of the, the one is the movement of history itself and the other is the historiography that emerges um, in relationship to that history um, in terms of history we the, the question of origins became significant for the nation- state of Pakistan um, after 1971 uh, when uh, Bangladesh is created and the original idea of part uh, that was the the basis of partition um, had to be um, rethought, reimagined, rejiggered. And it's at that, that moment that Pakistani um, sort of authorities, governing bodies, uh, um, there was a prime, obviously there was a, at that time an elected prime minister, but soon thereafter there was a military dictatorship. Um, really oriented themselves towards the um, Arabian Gulf and to the history of Islam in the eighth and ninth century uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, and it's at that moment that the question of origins um, became significant for Pakistan. And as I mentioned earlier, as someone who grew up during that dictatorship, we um, were told to privilege a particular originary myth in our understanding of our own past. Um, but that idea of um a particular beginning, um, a particular origin, has a longer history that goes back to the British um, historiography on South Asia in general, but particularly it became uh, va- sort of a particularly valid after 1843 when the East India Company um, conquers Sindh. Um, and it's at that time that there's there's sort of a culmination of both philological, archival, and uh, analytical historical work that posits that this territory of sin, which is contemporary, part of it is contemporary Pakistan around Karachi, uh, and part of it sort of flows into uh, what's now Gujarat um, on the Indian side. um, That uh, this was the um, space uh, of the of the um, arrival of Islam to South Asia as a polity, and the question for the British um, in historians and our uh, uh, you know sort of uh, orientalists in general was really to demarcate a native or indigenous population from a foreign and invasionary population, and that. Uh, demarcation takes many forms, ethnographic, travel, writing, historical work, theological work. Um, but it sort of expands, and as in the, the difference between a native population, um, that is the Hindu uh, and a foreign population, that is the Muslim, um, that difference uh, expands throughout the 19th century. And one of the points I make in my, uh, mostly in the introduction of my book, is that that difference is one of the primary motivations for the eventual partition, where an argument is made by political um, anti-colonial uh, or nationalist leaders that um, Islam uh, and Hinduism as, as civilizational pra- uh, histories have nothing in common in South Asia. Um, and hence the partition of the subcontinent is a um, historically mandated so you know, so there's there's both a type of history of uh, communal disharmony, um, and as well as a historiographic project that um, enunciated the um, Muslims as foreign, as belonging to a space outside of the subcontinent.
0: Now this uh, you set up to investigate this genealogy of the, the Chachnameh. Um could you tell us a little bit about this this text to begin with? How has this text generally been understood and what are what are some of your central arguments about this text?
1: So, you know, uh, to sort of continue from where I just left off, the the British idea or argument for for thinking about Muslims as foreign um, relied primarily on the um, on this particular text on the chashaami and this uh, reliance operated on again uh, a couple of scales one was the argument that um, um, East India Company philologists and political agents made in the early part of the 19th century was that uh, the chasname was a, a a text that um, contained a eyewitness account or near eyewitness account of the Arab uh, conquest in 712 CE. And this earlier translation or this eyewitness account was translated into Persian from Arabic somewhere in the uh, first decade or so of uh, the 13th century. And that version had been sort of passed down to um, and, and then quote unquote discovered by um, these Orientalist uh, philologists and uh, political agents and so in the and so you know Chaami was one central part of this argument because it it showed us a rival story and it showed that that arrival was military in nature and that showed that Muslims um, you know uh, massacred uh, native Hindus that they built, uh, mosques where temples once stood, and they um, enacted a uh, governance of um, terror, to quote their words. Um, and so Chhashameh then um, sort of becomes a, a primary uh, testimonial to this narrative. And it's uh, taken up, this this argument is taken up by nationalist historians and by um, uh, even uh, near contemporary scholars um, that treat this uh, text as a carrier text. That is, it's a Persian text from the early 13th century, but it carries within itself a earlier, um, uh, an earlier text that can be retrieved by careful philological work or um, by um, um, cross referencing it uh, intertextually or intratextually with other Mm -hmm. Arabic accounts from the 8th and 9th century. So that sort of was the uh, domain of how to think about Chashnamé in, in, more or less, there are some scholars um, who did uh, push back against this notion. And what I argue in my book, um, based on both um, uh, intertextual reading of the Chashnamé as well as uh, comparing and contrasting it to a range of texts um, in, in, within which it lives in the early 13th century moment, that this was not a translation at all, that this is a text written in the 13th century for and about the politics and the practices of governance for a uh, polity that is under a lot of stress from uh, a whole host of uh, uh, powers, including um, perhaps most prominently uh, Chinggis Khan. And this uh, this particularly uh, um, sort of uh, this particular turmoil, political turmoil, um, necessitates a type of cultural production, which ex- exemplified in my argument by the Shashnameh. And it, the text, thus I say, is a argument for a type of uh, polity, a uh, type of um, um, argument for um, governance, argument for habitation, argument for um, dialogue and discourse that uh, is rooted in the politics of the 13th century. And we can read it and should read it um, to illuminate that particular moment which is pivotal because right after uh, the the, uh, Chashama is written, um, uh, kabacha who's uh, the, the, Ruler of uh, in whose polity this text is being composed uh, loses the battle, and Iltutmish Tutmish founds the establishes the Delhi Sultanate in Delhi. And so, a, for the history of South Asia, a, um, a very particular transformation happens, where uh, the Muslim polity is in is sort of um, embedded in Delhi rather than in this liminal um, transregional. Uh, space that uh, the Chachnama was in, embedded in. And so there's lots of consequences for that, our political understanding of that past. Um, and Chachnama, until during that time, uh, or all the way until the British, uh, quote unquote, discovered it, um, actually is read by um, by different communities in very different ways. And it's those multiplicity of meaning making that I tried to uh, re-excavate and and re-envolve be
0: enlightened in my account. Um, now, one one final question uh, kind of about your approach before we kind of jump into s- some meat. Um, you had one really great quote that I think uh, exemplifies kind of your uh, methodology, but also kind of your, your structure in the way you, you write the text. Um, and so you say early on, how do we read a text through space and read a space through a text can you can you unpack that for uh, us for a little bit and in the sense of what kind of methodological framework did you employ um for your book and in what way did you kind of structure it in terms of your writing you 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 write in a very engaging way uh for for an academic book which isn't always successful so uh could you talk a little bit about that
1: I mean, um, thank you. I mean, I think that's really the, at the heart of the struggle that I had in uh, writing this book. Um, and now I can I can explain it through um, elaborating. You know, what I saw was a epistemic um, rupture in the ways in which Persian texts, in I would say, in general, but uh, perhaps this particular text in particular, have been studied. And that rupture is the, the uh, two types of disembodiments uh, that the text um, uh, goes through in South Asian historiography. And here, I I would put our timeline somewhere from 1800 all the way to uh, more or less the present. And the first disembodiment is that the the, the text, the manuscript, um, is uh, distended from. It's place of production, it's site of production, it's uh, the spaces in which it can move at a particular uh, moment in time. And so you have a a hermeneutical practice, an interpretive practice, that looks at a text for what lies within it and not uh, the, the, the materiality that surrounded it at the moment of its inception or the moment of its significance, whatever the historical case may be. So that's a type of space that i I was uh, deeply interested in that, you know, um, we try to think about the political world, or the material world that, um, surrounds the text at that moment of this, um, it's again, inception or significance. Another disembodiment that happens is that the Persian text, and this is a very large, uh, in, in significant ways as a result of Oriental, uh, British Oriental historiography. Uh, our texts are uh, chopped up, uh, excerpted, um, broken into little pieces, um, and then uh, reformulated into arguments. That is to say, the cohesiveness of the text, the full intent of the text, the, the, um, the idea of the text as a, as a uniform body, um, is rarely taken into consideration. Um, so you know this works in some degree for types of texts such as bodies of poetical material or um, other um, other types of accounts. Perhaps, though I probably will take that back as well. A geographical accounts, but for histories, um, um, historians have largely looked at sections, uh, subsections, particular um, particular parts of the text. Um, rather than uh, examining the entire text. So for a historian of medieval and early modern South Asia, it's, it's, um, it's a significant um, uh, uh, lack that I see that we don't have a study, let's say, uh, dedicated fully and only to Abul Fazl's uh, Akparnama, perhaps one of the most important texts or Ja'amat al or Juzjani's Dabhaqat al-Nasri. I mean, immensely important histories um, that had a, you know, a huge significance, both in their contemporary worlds and then subsequent worlds. Yet we don't really have a, a work that uh, deals with these texts, qua texts, looks at their production, looks at what's the argument within it. We have, you know, obviously, lots of excellent histories that Utilize these texts to make arguments about um, the early modern or medieval uh, South Asia, but these two types of disembodiments um, is what um, hides certain parts of interpretations uh, that are possible from from scholarly view. And so, for me, reading a text through space was really to look at Chachnama as produced in. The capital city of Kabacha, which is Uch, um, which um, now named, named Uch Sharif in southern Punjab, um, which was the which was a, a very prominent um, a cultural and political site for some twenty uh, two two decades in the early part of the 13th century. So really um, embedding it. Um, in, in that political space and reading um, a lot of the texts that were produced in and around Utsch. Um, and, um, and so that was sort of reading the text um, in a particular space. And then to actually turn to the text itself and see how it imagines space. Uh, so reading the spaces, both literal spaces, metaphorical spaces, um, spaces of engagement, spaces of uh, resistance, frontiers, that are examined or laid out inside the text, and so be very attentive to uh, the spatial logic, as it were, uh, alongside the textual logic. Um, so those were those were sort of my um, that that was my I say guiding principle. And what emerged from that principle was a methodology which took place over about two to three years, uh, where I conducted uh, ethnographic fieldwork in Butch and in Sin, so Lower Southern Punjab and, and Sindh, um, on the sites the, uh, that sort of have geographical, um, archaeological significance to the text um, that I was studying. This in- included uh, both visits to archaeological sites, visits to towns and cities that are mentioned. Uh, speaking with historians, um, cultural uh, keepers of cultural memory, um, political uh, operatives um, who had insights into interpretations of the text, just as I was trying to interpret a text. And this work um, informed the ways in which I was both uh, approaching a hermeneutical project, but also the ethics of how to read a text that had um, clearly a lot of significance for um, a, um, a population uh, and I, I wanted to, um, I wanted my work to remain legible uh, to them, uh, should they choose to engage with it at any point. And so that uh, sort of entailed my own uh, walking in particular spaces that oftentimes, you um, historians or medievalists um, tend not to do. Though, as I point out in my book, medievalists walking in archaeological ruins is a very old and very significant uh, history of itself.
0: Yeah, it, it works well, and uh, I, I think anyone who's interested in the study of South Asia, Islam, uh, really will enjoy the book, uh, so I hope they, they, they grab it. Now, um, you... You, you kind of dive in uh, by situating uh, medieval Sindh. Um, what would you say are the key spatial uh, and political backgrounds we need to know about in order to begin to unread this text?
1: Um, I think the the question of medieval Sindh is uh, to understand it spatially, uh, perhaps, is to imagine a world where... Um, the Yemen, Oman, and Gujarat um, uh, port cities and uh, liminal spaces are much more connected than um, interior land cities like between Multan and Delhi or Multan and Lahore. And that seems and sounds extremely counterintuitive to our modern sensibilities or the sensibility of a partition subcontinent. Where um, we can imagine um, you know travel between within a nation state uh, or within uh, land masses uh, but we don't take into account um, uh, movement over over sea uh, even if the distances are actually less and the um, presence of uh, individuals, uh, communities, uh, traditions um, are much more significant and have a extremely deep history uh, behind them that that sustains that movement. And so, for medieval sin, uh, the first challenge I had was to actually reorient the the, the reader um, to to think about um, the space um, in a in a. You know, from Dubai to Makran to Muscat to Aden, in a in a slightly different um, uh, perspective. Um, the sources that um, that I read in Arabic and Persian that emerge in the late eleventh, twelfth, and uh, through the thirteenth century um, are written by individuals and are about a movement uh, within the space. Um, And when we think about polities and we think about questions of governance and we think about questions of community making, um, we have ignored, and and here I speak, uh, we in terms of uh, historians of medieval South Asia, we have ignored um, a vast segment of literature because it happens to be in Arabic or it happens to be in Sanskrit or a Pratric language um, because we are trained and are dependent upon a particular sociolinguistic tradition uh, or a literary culture. And so for for my effort for to understand or to interpret Chashnama in a particular way or the way that I think um, is true to its uh, its uh, origin, uh, sorry, its uh, conception, uh, state of conception, was to, to look at more broadly at the region outside of the partition landscape that one could be familiar, one would be sort of uh, familiar with. Uh, in the contemporary
0: moment. Now, uh, you, you move on to place the, the Chachname within the textual universe of the early 13th century uh, in which it was produced. So uh, how does this kind of re-situating the text uh, displace these common readings that you mentioned earlier? Um, how should we think about genre or audience? Um, and, and, and specifically, what should we make of this claim of it being a translation?
1: Yeah, I mean, so that's the, you know, the, the, the crux of the argument uh, that I'm making, which is that it's not a translation, uh, although the text opens itself with two uh, two claims. Um, one, that this is a found text that the author, Ali Kofi, um, of whom we know very little outside of this text, um, Discovered in a, an individual, or bumped into an individual in, a, you know, Messy Bazaar and Tatta, who happened to be a direct descendant of Muhammad bin Qasim's family, who had in his possession an eyewitness account written in Arabic. And Ali Kufi states in his introduction, the Bacha, that, you know, he was able to get this copy of uh, of a history and um, string it in of Persian, such so that it would be legible to a wider audience um, at the time. And this, this question of Persian and Arabic uh, maps onto the divide between Ifnashari, Ismaili Shias and um, the Sunni, um, the Turkic Sunni um, elite that are in Uch at the moment. So it's not really a question that these languages were not legible uh, to the same individual as the people were not uh, bilingual in Arabic and Persian, but rather that this is a, a marking of a history of a Sunni history uh, in a particular way. And, um, and the second claim, uh, so the claim for translation is both that it's as a discovered text and that it's then translated. And this is a claim that the text itself makes and to counter it is to, um, actually, um, which is what I uh, do, is that I, I look at such claims of Arabic uh, descent, textual descent, as in claims in which a text is a translation of um, a previous text in Arabic, Persian text that's a translation from a previous text in Arabic, as well as um, genealogical descents of authors who are writing in Persian but claim a particular genealogy back to Muhammad or back to other elite in Quraysh or um, other um, early Islamic uh, figures. And what I um, demonstrate is that um, both a the, the idea of a author adding on to a previously existing text, a history that, um, you know, goes up to a particular moment and leaves open the space for further historical work, was extremely prevalent in Uch and in Lahore and in Muktan at the moment, as well as the claim for a Arabic genealogical um, uh, recuperation. And a number of authors, not just Ali Kufi, but Afi, uh, fakhri Mudabbir, all make such claims, either about texts that they have produced, which are, there just isn't an equivalent in Arabic that we have ever which is, again, the case with Chashnama. No one has ever found in such, a, in such an account. And the Chashnama itself textually, intertextually, never gives a title of the author or uh, you know, gives any information that, uh, that could help one locate any such um, text. Um, that within the milieu in which Adikuki was writing, this claim to... Uh, a, a pre-existing text that one uh, one author can add to as well as a claim to Arabic um, translation were established practices. And they had uh, different modes of um, um, engaging with the political world, the different reasons why one author would want to make such an argument. I kind of lay out some of those reasons. Um, and so that's one part of uh, arguing against this idea of translation which is to show um, the ways in which the claim for translation operated in the 13th century but the second most i think the sig- more significant uh, way in which i demonstrate this is not a translation is actually to look at the various putative genres that chashama can belong to so whether it's the tarikh genre uh, or the fatuh genre or the adab genre um, that, you know, elements of which are present in Shashname to various degrees and saying that, you know, if indeed this text is a composition or uh, translation, then we wouldn't be able to see such a variety of genres, many of which didn't even really exist um, at the time the original text is supposedly, you know, written, which is 7.12, uh, 7.30 or so uh, CE. Um, and, Furthermore, that Chashanama does very interesting things with genre itself, um, shapes and moves um, these uh, practices of literary composition and historical uh, narration. And so, what happens by doing this, by making these two arguments against translation, both intertextually and through uh, intra, through the text in its context is that we can actually we're free to now engage with charshama as a as a as a product of the 13th century, speaking to the 13th century moment. And, and as soon as we do that, a lot of things start making sense in our, our um, in our interpretive models, specific choices, uh, specific dialogues. Uh, a lot of the texts' and internal claims start to make more sense when we. Uh, embedded into the 13th century, and so my three chapters in the middle of the book then turn to the to Chashaname as a 13th century text and uh, look for its political significance, its its, its argument about um, dialogue with or understanding of difference uh, against its Brahminical other or um, other uh, lower caste others, as well as uh, the ways in which gender. Um, and uh, political power uh, for women are um, elaborated upon or understood within the text. All things that we can't make sense of if we read the text for a as a translation of an eighth century uh, world.
0: Now uh, these uh, chapters are are uh, basically case studies that where you kind of zoom into a specific uh, topic, um, and one you examine. Um, the Chachname uh, through the lens of advice. Um, so what, what do these council encounters tell us about the political vision uh, of the text? Uh, what, what, why does uh, the Chachname employ this mode of advice writing to craft uh, political theory?
1: And I think it's, it's, it's both that there is a model for advice writing, but actually what that model actually looks like is very interesting for us to think, because we're familiar in terms of Persian historiography, um, a tradition of uh, mirror for princess genre material that is, that we can call advice material, um, that has a specific format. It's uh, driven by the anecdote. It has maxims. It has uh, illustrations um, and... It's the voice of the author is uh, very clear, and the addressee is, is the prince, or the putative prince of the, the king. But the type of uh, work that's being done inside the Chashname looks very different. It's actually drawing much more on the Panchatantra material, the, uh, the example, counter-example, the um, argument-counter-argument model, where you... Actually, have to see, uh, and there's no, there's no clear maxim. There's no clear, um, you know, takeaway in that sense. And the, the question of the discourse, the argument, is uh, uh, itself an ethics of engagement. And so, what we see is that the Shashname in, in, in presenting advice, um, actually contains within it a number of letters that are being exchanged between. Um, Hajjaj bin Yusuf, a governor in Iraq, who is the financier and mastermind of this campaign, and uh, Muhammad bin Qasim, uh, the young general commander who is uh, carrying out this campaign. And uh, these letters have been studied by scholars, uh, uh, again, as, as sort of evidence of the 8th century um, worldview of these figures. But when you read them, as I do, as sort of uh, pairs of argument, counter-argument, um, and a discursive engagement where a type of position is argued for and then argued against, and then furthermore argued for and then furthermore argued against. You try, you, you, what you emerges from it is sort of a world of uh, letters that, within which um, advice comes from uh, a particular type of um, uh, engagement, polit- political type of uh, intellectual engagement, political. T- of, Sorry, particular type of intellectual engagement, particular type of uh, critical engagement, and uh, so Chashama as an as an example of the advice genre for this time period actually doesn't fit, uh, you know, and we have a number of texts from back to um, Khosrow uh, in um, in Persian that that um, uh, sorry, Nizami, etc., that that we can draw upon for. Um, for comparative work, including Shahnameh. So um, that chapter really is, tries to uh, say that the influence of um, Prakritic or Sanskritic models of advice um, is much more significant in this text, in this Persian text, than other uh, other um, advice genres, though they're also present in Shahnameh.
0: And you mentioned you also focus on questions of difference. So how does the, the chachname deal with religious difference uh, in terms of political organization? What tools of governance can be used to construct a diverse Muslim polity, according to the text?
1: Um, this is really the heart of, the, uh, I think, the project that chachname has, which is how do we understand um, the governed and the governing subjects as moral and ethical subjects, whether they happen to be of a particular sacral denomination or not. And this is Shia or Sunni or Vaishnavite or, or other out uh, of, you know, lower, uh, quote unquote, lower caste uh, groups. And the question for this polity, for kabachas polity that is heterogeneous in its elite and its subject and has, you know, is struggling to maintain uh, political control over this region. Uh, It's under attack from numerous fronts. You know, there's active warfare uh, with two or three different uh, protagonists that Kabacha is is facing. And within that uh, politically tense world, um, is this world of intellectuals that is flourishing in in, in Uch. Um, and you have Juzjani, you have Afi, you have uh, Kufi, the author of this text. Um, you, have, uh, you have other uh, Ma, other traditionalists. Uh, so you have a, a lot of cultural production that is happening under this this um, this political turmoil. And one of the ways in which I argue that Chashama plays a significant role, in at that cultural moment is that it it takes on very, very um, significantly the idea of difference. How do you recognize that someone is different from you? And does that recognition entail some action? Do you um, make peace with them? Do you uh, accommodate them? Do you uh, contest them? Do you expel them? What is you know so there's a there's difference that is unrecognized in, in the sort of theoretical work that I'm doing where where these choices aren't need not be made you just have, you have no reason to identify difference or figure out what the contours of it. Is. But once you recognize difference, uh, you have to put it in some cosmology that's cohesive and coherent to yourself or your political reality. And Tranchiname does that in. Uh, in two or three very significant ways. One, it provides a type of history of difference. Um, it It's written in the early part of 13th century, but the entire text is actually uh, the time period of the text itself uh, internally goes from around 620 uh, to um, a- around seven uh, 716 or so. So it's, it's not um, it's not talking about the world, it, its own temporal world. It's, it's imagining a past 500 years ago. And in that past, unlike uh, the tradition that uh, Arabic historiography has, where there is a Jahaliya period uh, for which little needs to be understood besides the you know the coming enlightenment, tashnama um, uh, very significantly puts a lot of... Uh, political theory, a lot of uh, political acumen, a lot of political history in the pre, quote, unquote, pre-Muslim pre uh, segment. So before Muhammad bin qasim uh, and his um, armies arrive in Sib. Now that is not a, um, to me, that is an extremely significant choice that is being made within the text. And the ways in which the, the, um, the actions of the, Um, commander on campaign um, are driven by this history, as in his actions are either constrained by or augmented by or enlightened by a history that the text is providing, that is a history of this region and a polity that existed in this region prior to the arrival of Muslims. Is the I think most fundamental way in which Tashnama makes an argument for understanding difference. And again, if we have you know we can look at the narrations about the conquest of Iraq uh, or the conquest of Egypt uh, in Arabic historiography, where these types of rationales for action uh, or you know legal uh, you know, legal basis for laws are not being embedded uh, explicitly in the text to the a political order that has been overturned or disrupted by the muslim uh, elite here chach the chachname and the chach of the chachname is a brahmin um, ruler of the space and this brahmin polity that uh, exists um, um, when the muslim campaigners arrive this brahmin the 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 legal and um, social order in that Brahminical uh, polity is actually taken in by Muhammad bin Qasim. And the text sort of makes very explicit uh, to us, the reader, that a lot of the logic of how you should, for, for example, uh, treat uh, the lower caste or how you should uh, uh, build a public works project or how you should um, look at the question of uh, political um, inheritance is being taken from the ways in which Chach had uh, oriented his, his polity.
0: And finally, you uh, examine the calibration of gender and power in the text. So what role uh, or what roles do women play in this narrative and what do they tell us about political power and just forms of rule?
1: This is, a, you know, in a sort of experimental book, this is perhaps my most experimental chapter, um, where I'm really trying to understand um, how a type of ethical subjectivity is understood in a text about ethics and about politics. And what I show or demonstrate in the chapter is that Almost all of the subjects that uh, come in and out, characters that coming come in and out of the text, display some level of ethical um, weakness or moral weakness, or are you know too good, quote unquote, or um, or are too compromised. Um, but there is a demonstrable demonstrable strain of. Um, an ethical subject that has both political acumen, that has um, a way of engaging uh, with the with the political constraints uh, of a polity coming into existence or being under stress, that remains constant between the Brahminical and the, and the Muslim uh, segments of the text, and these subjects are all women, there are elite women,
0: there are women who are engaged in um, sort of
1: governance themselves, they're engaged in um, orienting the ways in which decision making can happen. And what I point out is that for this 13th century moment, this is um, extremely true to the historical reality of the both the Turkic and um, the um, Indic. uh, political uh, states in, and yeah, Al-Tutmash, who defeats Kabacha and, as I mentioned earlier, founds the uh, Delhi Sultanate, um, he himself um, uh, gives his, uh, you know, um, bequeaths his um, polity to his daughter Razia Sultan and uh, makes a case in his uh, bequeathment. To her suitability as a ruler, and uh, you have um, uh, female uh, women who are uh, rulers in Yemen. We have um, women who are in political power in the in sort of the Deccan area, and so this this is there's nothing in Shahnameh that sort of raises an eyebrow about any of this. Now what does happen in subsequent historiography is that these women are um, written out of political uh, histories and they're both diminished in their actions but also diminished in their uh, capacity to be uh, political agents. And so the chapter kind of uh, discusses what happens when we uh, write out uh, women from the role they played in political power, and thus constituting a, 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 concept, a concept of political power that is uh, that it's that is gendered uh, towards the, the masculine uh, male gender by default, and so political power always looks like a, a man in a, in, in the type of uh, historiography that we are. Um, that we have inherited and that chapter is really trying to push us away from that historiography and to show that there are both textual and material and political um, strands of thought that we have not paid enough attention to in our interpretive practices.
0: Now at the end of the book, you return to uh, a little bit about uh, what we actually began the conversation with this afterlife of the narrative. So... Uh, why would you say uh, this is the only narrative about Muslim origins in India uh, as a story of conquest? Um, when you you uh, articulate right how this text does many many other things, um, could you tell us a little bit about the history of how this text was reframed in the colonial historiography, um, and and what would you say are the the kind of lasting effects of this this framing?
1: Um, So, as I mentioned earlier, this text is, uh, quote-unquote, discovered at a moment in early 19th century, just as the East India Company uh, is really focusing on this region, on the river, the Indus River, um, and the polity that exists at that time in Sindh, the Talpur, uh, the Mirs of Talpur, as their uh, political, uh, as as their next sort of um, uh, princely state that must must be conquered. And this region becomes, in their East India Company's formulation, both a type of buffer zone against French and Russian uh, incursion into the subcontinent, um, as well as a a major way through which opium and other material goods can be transported into the uh, Indian Ocean. And so there's strategic importance, there's uh, political int- importance, and there's sort of mercantile importance to this uh, this region for the British based East- India Company. And as part of that project, a number of political agents sort of start writing histories of this. Uh, region and one of the most significant ones of this is perhaps familiar to our audience, uh, this, uh, our listeners, is Richard F. Burton, who spends uh, about eight years and writes about three texts about tra- both travel narratives and ethnologies of the of the region. And in their collective effort, Chashnama is really solidified as a conquest narrative, not a narrative about adab or. About uh, accommodation or about um, political theory, but rather a demonstration of Muslim, as I mentioned earlier, Muslim violence and um, in and indigenous suffering, and that framework uh, carries into the arguments that the nationalists start to make in the 1920s and 30s. Everyone from Ambedkar to um, uh, to uh, the Muslim League, um, to the um, uh, to the RSS, to the Hindu uh, uh, right wing, um, all of them focus on this question of conquest, and the conquest is not simply uh, at this point not just the Muhammad bin Qasim eighth century, but also the Mahmud Ghaznavi. Uh, 11th century and also babur's uh, 16th century so all a series of otherness become part of this narrative so muslims are always arriving they're all, always arriving as a conquering force and they're always disrupting and there's no um, there is no flow to the history of existence uh, that we, we may have uh, as Muslim subjects in in the subcontinent. And the Chachnama, alongside other texts and uh, other arguments, thus is a a, a formidable part of of this formulation. And what I sort of conclude in my book is that, look, what I've tried to do is take away one bit of this foundation. That that is, I've tried to demonstrate Chachnama at least cannot be read as a book of conquest and cannot be read for this argument of uh, separation, civilizational separation. That means that historians of the subcontinent, medieval historians, um, have to do similar work for other um, parts of this narrative uh, that are tied to Qasnabi or Hori or the Mughal um, polities. And that work still needs to be done. But this entire argument that Muslims are always uh, coming as foreigners to the subcontinent and are not engaged or do not have um, basis for um, belonging is, the is, uh, in, my, in my view, is the root of a lot of communal violence, is the, the root of a lot of um, political dis- discord in the subcontinent. Hmm.
0: Well, it's, it's an excellent book. I love these kind of deconstructive genealogies uh, and you, you wrote it in a way that makes it uh, enjoyable to, to read straight through. So thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Before I let you go though, um, we, we'd love to hear about the things you're working on now, uh, projects you're either in the midst of or things that might be uh, in the pipeline in terms of stuff we could uh, encounter uh, more quickly perhaps.
1: Um, hopefully the next book will be more quickly. Um, I'm, I'm sort of, as a result of this work, I became really interested in philosophies of history, um, which is perhaps an interest that goes back to my dissertation. Um, and I became interested in sort of thinking about how the the, the role and theory of history writing governs, um, the ways in which, uh, the past is, um, contextualized both by contemporary and by obviously by later um, readers and viewers and so the next project is a a project that focuses on a philosophy of history certain from from circa 13th century to about the 21st for south asia that is trying to uh, both uh, embed the colonial historiographical um, project as well as, um, you know, uh, deconstructed. Um, and so I'll be, I'm looking at a, a series of historians who wrote, uh, like I said, between the 13th and the 19th, uh, in fact, sorry, the 21st century, um, who wrote about the, the deep past of Islam and uh, the types of uh, philosophy that governs their work. Um, so that's what I'm uh, sort of currently working on and I'm really hoping that this is not a project that lasts um,
0: too long (laughs) well good luck and uh, we we hope to speak to you again uh, maybe about that project thanks a lot Thank thank you so very much that was my conversation with Manan Ahmed Asif on a book of conquest the Chachnameh and Muslim origins in South Asia published with Harvard University Press in 2017 thanks for listening to new books in Islamic studies and we'll see you next time